Hi, this is Nick Flynn. You're listening to Drinks with Tony, where Tony talks to Nick Flynn. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Shane. Today on the show, we have Nick Flynn. He's the author of Another Bullshit Night in Suck City, which was adapted to a film called Being Flynn. He also wrote a book about that called The Reenactments. He also has a poetry collection out called I Will Destroy You. His new book is called Stay. It's a mixed media retrospective that shows nothing is created in isolation. Nick Flynn, how are you? Hi, Tony. Nice to be here. Oh, it's, yeah, I wish I was virtually, virtually here. Virtually, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, we were talking a second ago. I was telling you a little bit about my woes and hesitation and excitement for having a dream come true. Doesn't everyone want a film based on their life? And then, and then it actually happens. <laughs> what, what, how do you feel about that? <laughs> well, it's the same. Like, you know, I, I lived in a boat for 10 years when I was in my 20s, and uh, it, it was similar to that. I mean, people would say, like, I've always wanted to live in a boat, but the reality of it is much different. It's like not as, you know, for every, you know, one day that's sort of, really beautiful is is 20 days of, of you know of i mean i wouldn't call it hell but like a lot of like crazy insane work that normal people don't have to do to like just to you know just to make your oatmeal in the morning is like confusing so uh so yeah it was similar to that it was similar to that like that that um but i i actually had a good you know i mean it sounds like anyone had a better process than you did um we'll, we'll get to yours but uh Mine was mine was pretty good. Just that, just in that, I ended up really becoming close to the director who wrote the script, and you know, he and I are still friends. And 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 then his also his his the people, the producers that work around him that are just his, his people that he works with, we're kind of all friends still. I mean, maybe not like you know, you know, checking in daily, but I've checked in with them all since this you know disasters happened, and so they're yeah. in that circle of people, um, and. Uh, it went as well as it could have gone, really. Like, it was like, you know, it was, uh, it was fun. You know, I got to, like, hang out with Robert De Niro for, like, you know, a couple months, you know. Like, that's, that's okay. You know? How, when did you find out that De Niro was cast? And then this, would, this is what would happen to me. First, I would just go screaming and dancing up and down the halls because, one, he's cast. And then I'd be like, when do I meet him? When can I meet him? When can I meet him? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little different for me because they we had been working on the book the script. Uh, Paul Whites wrote the script, but he would send each each draft to me, and I would give him notes, and we'd talk about them. And so there were like thirty scripts. And at some point, after about we'd gone through like two studios, we were on our second studio, and um, you know, end up going. We ended up doing it with a third studio with Focus. Uh, and so we'd done 30 drafts of the script and the script, the first script that Paul wrote was really gorgeous, was really uh, kind of remarkable. It was like this really strange, like we described it as like a, like the, an art, Eastern European art house film. Like it was just really sort of captured something really wild and strange and beautiful. Um, and I read it and wept and my agent read it and wept and my wife read it and wept and my wife who's in the business was like, that's really, really gorgeous. Like Hollywood will never make this movie. Like <laughs> they're never going to make this. And sure enough, once it went to the, you know, once it went through 30 drafts, the drafts were because of input from the studios. 
like the junior vice presidents putting their fat thumbs in it and stuff. And uh, it, by the end of it, it was unrecognizable. It was like horrible. It was a horrible script after 30 drafts. Yeah. And uh, it got worse. It just got like increasing, steadily worse. Like just kept going downhill. Um, you know, it's about my father and his, his, you know, my father's an unlikable character. You know, he's, he's, you know, street alcoholic and he's homophobic and racist and sexist and paranoid. And he's, he had very few redeeming qualities that you could see on the surface, you know. Uh, I mean, I saw, you know, hopefully you see some if you read the book. Uh, but it takes a while. He doesn't reveal his charms readily, really. So, uh, so you know, we, you know, we're going to go with that, like that he, um, uh, yeah, so, so De Niro, De Niro actually, we hadn't cast yet for the, we hadn't cast the, the lead yet. And we've been talking to a few people, and their names coming back and forth. And then at one point, uh, De Niro, I got a call from the producer saying that De Niro wants me to meet him at his studio. And they didn't know what it was for. Um, and they were like, really like, like he wasn't, he didn't want to talk to the Hollywood people. He didn't want to talk to the producer. He didn't want to talk to the screenwriter. He didn't want to talk to me. And so I went to his studio. I, was, I lived in Brooklyn. I rode over to Tribeca on my bicycle and uh, went up and met with, you know, Rob De Niro. And De Niro, like, he's just like, uh, he's like, hey, you know, I really love your book. Your book is really great, but the script really sucks. <laughs> and, and he had clearly like really spent time with the book. Like the book was like crazily dog-eared and marked with post-its and like he really spent a lot of time. He really wanted to do the film. But he's like, yeah, but the script's really terrible. And I'm like, okay, there's a better script. I mean, this, the first script is really good. This, this script does, it's terrible. And he's like, well, let me, let me see that and then we can talk. And so, and the, you know, the director and the producer were waiting for me to call them. Like, right as I got out of the meeting, like, what, what was this meeting about? And uh, I told him, so they sent the script over and then he signed on. And, we, and when he signed on, when we went with the, the lesser, the, the, the original script, uh, you know, whatever, whatever uh, studio we were with backed out because they had, had input on that script, on the terrible script. So they backed out and then we went with another, much, much less of a budget. Like, you know, the budget was much less and yeah. which made it much better. And it's uh, it's interesting how get the, the budget gets larger, and then all of a sudden everyone has to kind of, it's not even like they're given notes. It's like they have to kind of uh, what do you call it, uh, make sure that their job is still stable. So they just say anything. It seems like they can say anything. I think it's to say anything. It made no sense. Like by the end, he was you know basically like like, you know, a golf pro that went on a bender one weekend. I mean, it wasn't like. You know, like it, they, they took any edge out of it, any sort of darkness. It was just like everything was kind of fine, and he just sort of made a mistake one weekend or something. Like it was just, just terrible. <laughs> hey, I'm so I'm glad De Niro championed it. Now, now when you're going through those thirty rewrites, as you you know, the first one you're just like this hits, and then that the the um, it just must have been you're going, oh my god, they're ruining everything. They're ruining the narrative. They're ruining my life. I mean, that's. Well, approach it. <laughs> well, it's, boiling, it's boiling the frog i mean it doesn't happen all at once it's just you make one concession on one script and then you make another concession on the next script you make another one by the end you realize it's all been changed but it changes very slowly like yeah. it's not like the whole thing gets inverted at once you know it's it's it's, it's over a course of years and so it's like and it's it's you know it's clear that if you do not accept the changes then it's just it's dead yeah. So you're like, okay, I guess I can do one more change, you know? It's like it's, it's you know, 
it's, it's ugly. It's an ugly business. It's an ugly business. So. At the same time, it may have never gotten to De Niro if there wasn't the if the the frog wasn't totally boiled at the end, yeah. and then yeah. and then he gets the joy of going, "This script sucks. Do you have anything else?" And then he gets to see yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it all worked out. It all totally worked out. We're very lucky. You know, very lucky in that in that sense because it could have gone it could have gone very badly. Yeah. Yeah. Or or very likely it wouldn't have been made. I mean, most films don't get made either. So I mean, it's such a miracle. It freaks me out. And that's yeah. yeah. Like I mean, because I spent so much time because I wrote the screenplay for Jesus. Yeah, tell me, tell me about yours. Yeah, tell me about yours. Well, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk. I wrote the book. It's very based on my life growing up a Jehovah's Witness and having really awful, domineering father. And Paul Edelstein plays the father in the film. And uh, mm-hmm. he came on set dressed. And he had uh, Eric Stoltz's um, father's glasses on. Eric, we were both putting our little Easter eggs in on the set through the whole shoot. Mm-hmm. So it was Eric Stoltz's father's glasses and just all these little touches. And he walked Eric, in. Eric Stoltz paid you? Eric Stoltz paid, played you? No, no. He would just, Eric just directed. Oh, I see. Okay. So this was Paul Edelstein playing my father. Uh, mm-hmm. And when he came on set and they and the wardrobe dressed him and Eric threw the glasses on him, it was like the same glasses my dad had when he was an elder in the Jehovah's Witnesses. It scared the crap out of me. And just and, yeah, yeah. and Paul came in in character, just his demeanor was just like, I'm like, how did you get that? How did you know? It's like he went back in time. I mean, I, it just blew my mind. I didn't say anything. I just went, your process is great. I'll just stand yeah. here. But yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it, it was uh it was very low budget. So I mean, we're lucky we got we're lucky it got made. We're lucky it stayed in production. There was times in production where they were just like, "We're done. We're out of money. It's it. That's it." And then it yeah. kept going. And then um and then it was in post production for a while. And then you know I, I I was putting way too much work into it. Where I was just like, "God, I should have wrote two more books instead of putting all of this energy." You know, <laughs> I was just like, "What? Maybe this is the wrong decision." And um, now, you know, now I, I had my breakdown a couple of years ago where I was just like, this is the wrong decision. That was the stupidest thing I ever did. I've completely blown my whole life. I called, actually called Jerry Stahl and I was just, I was like, dude, what, what do you do? And he's like, you know, he's like, there's a few of us that have movies made about our lives. And he's like, you know what, why don't you do what Nick Flynn does? Just write a book about it. And I'm all, oh, and then I started writing a book about it and it got me more depressed. <laughs> and I was like, then I was like, okay, what's the last thing that made me happy? And I was like, wait, doing my radio show, Drinks with Tony, when I was in San Francisco. So oh, I just cool. started Drinks with Tony again. And then I'm like, oh, okay, now I can do it all. <laughs> how, how long has this been back? How long has Drinks with Tony been back? No. Uh, we, I just put up episode 80. So it's been weekly for 80 weeks. That's um, great. Wow. wow, that's a long yeah. time. So that's, that, that brought me back to sanity. And it also brought me back to my writer, you know, mm-hmm. like, Right, the first people on were like, okay, let's just get all my friends. And then after yeah. that, I won't be able to get anyone. I don't care. I'll just end it. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, no, people keep showing up. And I'm like, and that yeah. <laughs> are happy. That's Yeah, you make new friends. You make new friends. Yeah. I mean, we're all weirdos. We're all weirdo writers. It's like, you know. Yeah, yeah. When you were, when you were working on the, you were working on a ship? I was, I was I worked on a, a ship in Provincetown, a boat, a boat in Provincetown. I wouldn't call it a ship; we'd call it a boat. It wasn't uh-huh. that big. I had a captain's license. I have a captain's license, and but uh, uh, you know, merchant marine license. But uh, 
it was it was just to drive a small boat like around the harbor really so and where's Provincetown at? It's the very end of Cape Cod, uh, the tip of Cape Cod. It's like a, it's a, it's one of my homes. It's a sort of crazy um, art uh, community, gay community, uh, it's like local fishing community. Uh, really, at the end, it's really remote and desolate, and yet really gorgeous. Uh, oh. The end of Cape Cod yeah. in Massachusetts. Massachusetts, yeah. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I, I, I know that. I've seen the. I've seen it on a map. Where That's it. it. Yeah, the very end of it is, yeah, yeah. And that's you what see you see it on placemats. You see it on placemats, yeah. Oh, do you? Well, see, like, you know, it's, it's obvious you know, that that arm's sticking out into the Atlantic. You know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is that where you grew up then? I grew up right across from the arm, sort of like in the armpit, I guess. Um, right across from the end, if that's the fist. I grew up across the bay, the Cape Cod Bay, in oh. a town called Situate, which was, uh, you know, a much more conventional town. A beautiful town on, on the water also, but not like it wasn't arty and gay and and weird and full of freaks and you know John Waters didn't make films there and like it was you know it was a different thing you know it wasn't run by drag queens so Provincetown was sort of the place to go yeah you know? yeah that, that and that just was that like a was that refreshing to get there after being in a where you grew up or were you just like oh man no, in my, oh, my I mean in my you know. The house I grew up in was pretty wild too, in certain ways. I mean, it wasn't like we I wasn't lacking for excitement. So, oh yeah, uh, in the house I grew up in, yeah, I mean, there was there was stuff going on. So, um, uh, in some ways, it just made more sense because you know you sort of maybe had to hide that stuff where I grew up because uh, it was unusual what was happening. You know, whereas in Provincetown, everyone was doing that, so you didn't have to hide anything. So you could just you know it was full of freaks. So. Yeah. It wasn't as, you didn't feel as much of a freak in Provincetown, you know. Provincetown, I felt like much more wildly conventional there than in other places. Because you go to like a, you go to like a meeting, like a panel discussion of like, you know, cross-dressers from Ohio. And you're just like, wow, like I just, I haven't really thought like this. This is like amazing, you know, like this is wild. This is just something, that, a whole nother realm where I am the most conventional person in this room right now. Yeah. You know? so, there's something when, nice about that yeah when you realize you're the square you know like, oh, i've been hip i've been hip and then it's like when you realize you're the square it's almost oh, yeah, like yeah. A, it's like a it's a breath where you're like oh wait i get to aspire to be less square yeah 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 Not, or, yeah or, or just like yeah it's, there's the whole bigger world the world is just bigger it's just a bigger world there so yeah yeah i at um at what point did you just go, you know what, I'm, I'm going full in on writing? Or was there ever a point? Or, or how did it work for you? I think it was like, I, I really was always into language and writing, but I didn't really have any sense that you could do anything with it or that you could, how you became a writer. I didn't have any sense of that. There was no career path that I could imagine. But I just, I liked it. I liked reading. I liked writing. Uh, it suddenly started pouring here. Can you hear the rain? Like I can't. Oh. Buckets. Buckets are coming down. Um, it, it's raining in Los Angeles, too, right now. We, we may be similar <laughs> weather. Yeah, it's some of the plague rain, you know, falling from the sky. Right, right. Uh, the frogs are coming yeah. next. Pestilence. It's feeding, yeah. It's feeding the coronavirus. It's like, this is, it's food. Um, so, uh, yeah, I didn't have a sense of doing it, but I did it. I really was, like, into writing. And through my 20s, I read and I, you know, I, 
I, I studied English as a, as a, you know, in college and tried writing, but I just wrote terribly. I was just a horrible writer, but also part of it was that I was uh, also an addict and using and, uh, and it wasn't until I quit drinking and doing drugs that I was actually able to do, to write anything coherent, really. I was fortunate in that way because, you know, a lot of writers somehow are able to be addicts and write. I don't know how they do it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think I feel very lucky that I wasn't able to because that's really why I quit drinking was because I clearly could not write when I was using. So, huh. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I feel like, uh, like, it's like even when I'm a, because I also teach like screenwriting and novel. And what I find is a lot of, especially early um, people who are just starting to write, they feel like they need to get drunk or high to write. And I'm, I, I kind of explain to them, yeah, I used to do that too. But I used to do it to get rid of my self-censor. That's when I realized I was doing it so I can get, so I can feel okay to put things I felt ashamed about on the page. And then there's a point where you learn, wait, it's, I can get to that without, it's, I can't even fathom drinking or doing anything if I'm writing. If I'm writing, I, gotta, I have to be utterly straight. And then that's when I can tap my, my, inner, my inner self and really get in. But I think that needs a little exercise because we're in this weird, as we, you know, as we, uh, we're, we're not supposed to tap those dark sides. We're not supposed to really hit the dark stuff. So some of those people need to, need to give themselves permission. And I think they're probably giving themselves permission by going, oh, yeah, I wrote that when I was stoned or drunk. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, a couple of things that responded to what you just said. The, uh, you know, you know, what do you do, the, the, how you access this stuff that you're ashamed of? Like, I, yeah, I encourage my students to, like, you know, to cultivate their shame. I mean, it's very anti-New Agey. Like, it's not like letting go of your shame. It's like to bring it, but just for that moment, just to sort of realize, like, there's some things that are, you know, the lesser emotions, to sort of let them sort of have their moments uh, in your writing day, in, you know, if that's what you're working on, to, 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 to put it through that filter at least once, like what you're writing through, like what is about this that you're not saying, that you're afraid to say, you're ashamed of saying. Uh, with everything that you write, just it, it should go through that filter. It, it just makes it more, you know, deeper in some way. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I was, I was lucky. Like I couldn't like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I really couldn't do anything when I was using it. I don't know. Like I, I, I mean, I did stuff. I mean, I had I lived in a boat and I, you know, got a captain's license and did shit, but it was really like, it was more like I was in a realm of like a visual artist where like visual artists, I think can do shit when they're fucked up because it's just moving shit around. Right. It's like you, you can, you know, but moving language around is like you're such in the realm of abstraction already that and, and emotion you're sort of navigating emotional energy where it can come out physically if you're like a sculptor or something and you can be drunk you could probably do things you could find things in that way but it's such a fine line when you're dealing with language i think that, uh, at least for me you know some people seem to be able to do it. most writers i know that i've heard about they don't actually write when they're drunk they write when they're hung over you know so that is that is that's what i've heard it's not like you know yeah so so what they do is they add pain to their process you, know, you add shame you, you feel a little bit you know cheapish and a little bit bad about what you did and you feel you know so you get to access sort of these sort of you know nasty little emotions you know you, you, you know i don't know it breaks your ego down maybe a little bit like you you're humbled by your hangover oh, yeah because and that's the thing um i, I was working with this uh I was working with this one writer and he was scared to, he's like, I, I, he's like, man, the, 
when I'm talking about, when I'm writing about this stuff, I'm going to look like a really shitty person. I'm like, no, no, no. That's, that's your interpretation of it. When people, when people read it, they're going to gravitate to it and go, I've had this thought before. I think like this. It's, I, I like to, to, to dive in and go, okay, this person's writing from honesty. And it's, and it's kind of scary, and I can never say this myself, but I wish I could say it like these people. Well, I mean, you know, and, you know, it's pe- some people will read it as if it's like writing from an honest place and some people just recognize, yeah, we're all shitty sometimes, you know, <laughs> we all do. and this person is writing in an honest way about when they were shitty, you know, like it's, yeah. yeah. I think it's, just, and it's a, yeah, we have to embrace that part of us that has these, you know, especially on the page. That's, that's where I get excited. It's just like, you know, it's the, I had to, I, I was, I was scared to death when I was started writing, um, Jesus jerk. Cause I was like, nobody can ever see this. Nobody can ever see these thoughts I had. And I can't write about the Jehovah's witnesses. Cause that was very taboo. Even though I didn't believe it anymore, they were very against any outside writing. So it took me many years to like, and therapy to kind of go, Oh, I could talk about this. Do you know other Jehovah witness writers? Um, oh, uh, Amber's. Oh God, I forgot her last name. She just wrote a book called leaving the witnesses. Okay. Um, came out last i think last year um and i know uh my, my dear friend jacqueline woodson is uh she was raised a jehovah's witness oh really uh, yeah yeah she's she's great i mean it's it's and it's you know i think she got some good things from it you know like not you know i mean something she, she often says we're i guess it's a jehovah's witness phrase we are in this world but not of this world or something is that like does that ring true to you or Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. It's somehow just sort of floating above this world in some way. Like I, I think it's kind of cool. Like she sort of, I think she she says it, you know, with some distance to it. But I think it's sort of part of who she is too. You know, we're, we're in this world, but not of this world. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of a cool little koan. I don't even know what it means, but I think it's a cool koan. You know, there's there is a there, there's a oh, there yeah. I used to be ashamed about that identity, and now I'm like. No, I've brought some stuff out of that. I still have these quirks. I still, you know, just 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 go into it. Don't try to avoid it. Van, Van Morrison has that great song, Kingdom Hall, you know? Do you know Van Morrison's song, Kingdom Hall? I don't know. Oh, it's a fantastic song, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Because he got real religious in different ways, and maybe it seems like he tried the Jehovah's Witnesses, or at least he like, liked the name of the temple, you know? Like, right. He has a whole... There's a whole thing about like it's this song called Kingdom Hall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way my, the way I was brought up, you know, we had to go three nights a week, and I'm just a kid, <laughs> so all I want to do is play. But no, I had to sit there and listen to boring Bible lectures three nights a week. Yeah. And then my dad was an elder, so he would make us stay after while they had the elders meetings, and there was just nothing to do. So essentially, my whole life was just impound boredom tincture on me. So then when I found like music and stuff, I would sneak and go see bands in San Francisco. And that's when I went, oh, wait, there's people that speak to me. So You were, you were outside of San Francisco? That's where you grew up? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in uh, Millbrae, which is right by the San Francisco airport. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, okay, down south there, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the 80s, 90s. So, you know, there's if no one had a car, we kind of had no way to get up there and back. And then all of a sudden, friends yeah. started getting driver's licenses. So it would just be like, Dad, we're going to Bible study in another congregation. Oh, that's great, son. Wow, on a Friday night, you know, spirituality. And then 
we go see some bands and come back. Go get the butthole surfers in, in fucking San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nice, nice. And then go to the Kingdom Hall the next day and not feel, and go, that was kind of fun. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I took a, yeah. So, yeah, I know that area a little bit. You know, I got a friend that lives down, like, down near there, near the airport down there. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that we're on this thing. We were talking about drinks before, about, like, the uses of, you know, alcohol for writing and stuff. Because um, this is called Drinks with Tony. I was, I was thinking, one of my stories is, you know, I'm sober. I've been sober for a while, but I, a few years into it, um, I got a call from a, like a whiskey company in England. This is like a, just a few years ago. And they were offering to fly me over to England and put me up for like a weekend in London and just film me like tasting their whiskey. And like, and then I would say something poetic after it. <laughs> and, um, and I was so tempted. I was just sort of like, I really had to like really do a lot of work on that. I'm like, okay. I could just, just one sip. Like I could just do this, you know, and I get a free trip to London. I, I sort of had negotiated to bring someone else with me. Like I said, because my daughter really wanted to go. So I was going to like bring her to London. I'm like, I'll just drink the whiskey for my daughter, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I, and then I sort of was like, well, maybe I can get him to just like put apple juice in it. I'll just drink apple juice and say something that like, you yeah. know, just say it's, Oh, it's smoky. And just, you know, yeah, so I don't know what the hell I'd say. Um, but uh, yeah, I had to finally like, turn it around and it's, it's strange it's strange i was asked also to write like an absolute vodka ad at one point like uh-huh. like to write a thing and, and i think i wrote something that was like really fucking negative about alcoholism <laughs> like <laughs> and you know they didn't accept it obviously like it was like a lot of money too it was like five thousand dollars to write this like copy for a yeah know, they, had, they had writers writing things that would be on that absolute bottle you know they're yeah. just sort of in the bottle Oh, I, I see. Okay, like quotes from writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And somehow to somehow, cap, it could be a little story or something. The story I wrote was just about like, you know, just like really sad alcoholic story. And they're like, yeah, we can't use this. <laughs> yeah. You got paid though, yeah? What's that? You get paid? No, 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 no. I didn't get paid at all. No. Oh. Yeah, I was, you know, I wanted to, because I started Drinks with Tony in 2002. Cause I used to tape in bars and then I would, and then I would bring the, um, when authors would come through San Francisco, I would tape in bars or cafes and then I would do it on my radio show, the different segments. Mm-hmm. So when I went to restart it, I'm like, should I call it something else? I'm like the book publishers, no drinks with Tony. They're the, they'll, they'll send me people. They, they still know that. So drinks with yeah. Tony is usually tea with Tony. It's people, every, like every five or six authors are like, when, when we're in person, they're like, Where's our drinks? I'm like, I'm coffee. I want. I don't want to sound sloppy. I want to have a coffee. <laughs> and I also kind of like the um, the awkwardness of just let's just sit here. I haven't <laughs> met you before. Yeah. And we'll talk. And how yeah. weird is that? And then sometimes beauty comes out of it. Sometimes it's. <laughs> I mean, drinks is a general term. It's like saying you want to meet someone for coffee. You're not necessarily going to have coffee with them. Even it's just like a yeah. It's just a way to meet someone. It's just a way to meet and talk, really. I well, some people say, "Hey, let's go get coffee," and they go have sex. So. That could be that. Yeah, it could be that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that never worked for me on the show. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too late. Yeah, I know. Now that now that interviews are done remote, you know, number eighty-one, number eighty-one. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. When um. <laughs> So what's funny, and I got, I got, I got to bring up something else that's kind of funny is 
how you were saying, yeah, I used to like be an addict and drink when I was a captain, which kind of scares me. <laughs> oh, yeah, be afraid. Yeah, be afraid. <laughs> like, no, okay. it wasn't, yeah. Was there any times where you were just like tipping, tipping the bottle and then going, oh, wait, I, I got, that was the first, a- the first time I did it, like I was learning, I was just learning. I was, you know, pretty young when I got, I did it for like seven years. And so I was like all through my twenties. And uh, uh, when I first showed up, I just showed up in Provincetown living on a boat. And a guy that ran, that ran the boat that, that I ended up being a captain on just came by to, you know, to talk to us and uh, we became friends. And then he's like, and then I think that summer, or maybe not that summer, but maybe the next summer, he's like, well, why don't you, why don't you be a captain? Why don't you be one of my captains? So, and literally the first trip I took, uh, you know, you're, I was driving people back and forth to the boats. It's like a launch, you know, it's not a, you know, but I could hold like a lot of, you know, enough people that would be dangerous, like 15 people or something. Like, you know, you wouldn't want to lose 15 people. Um, uh, yeah, and the first time I brought some people, it was a beautiful Sunday day. I brought people out there like, hey, you want a beer? I'm like, sure. And I, I came back to the dock, like drinking a beer while I was driving the boat. And my boss, my friend was just like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> like your first trip, you're drinking on your first trip? Like, that's not, you can't do that. Like, I'm like, oh, I just didn't know. I was like, oh, you can't? You can't drink while you're driving a boat? Like, why? Okay, okay, sure. I didn't know. I, I thought you could. What, can, what drugs can you do while you're driving a boat? <laughs> like, give me a thing. Because there was a guy that actually was the dock master. He was a total cokehead. And he would just be doing coke all day. And like, that seemed okay. I mean, people were like, you know, so, yeah. It, yeah. But not, no one, as, as far as I know, no one died on my watch. So Right. Yeah. Maybe after. Maybe right after. When the <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> after what? I cut the rope. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, so, uh, when, so another night, another, uh, another, uh, Another bullshit night in Quebec City. Wait, when did you uh, just steamroll ahead and go? Wait a second, I have something here. This is something. Um, when when did you realize it was something, or did you think it was something before you got there? Um, well, it took me. You know, it's a book about my father. You know, being homeless in New York, and me um, ended up going to work at the homeless shelter that he would end up at, you know? So the book is about how I ended up at the shelter and then how three years later he ended up at the shelter and how we met there. Cause we didn't know each other and how we met there and did you know, wrestled with each other for a couple of years. And then we both left the shelter. Um, that's sort of the arc of the book. And it start, I started the book like literally like 10 years to the day after he showed up at the shelter, like, um, so, and by that point he had been, he'd been in housing, like he'd been, you know, he was in section eight housing and he was, you know, on his own, not sleeping in the streets anymore. Um, and I had, I had already published like uh, uh, three books or no, I'd, I'd written, I was, I was um, hadn't published any books when I started it, but I was, had three books that I was working on before that. Uh, Cause I, you know, it took a long time for the books to get published. So, uh, when my first book did come out in 2000, I had like another book came out in 2000 and another one came out in 2002. And then this one came out in 2004. It looked like I was very prolific and a fast writer, but I've been working on them for like 15 years. You know, it just, that's how they came out. It wasn't, I wasn't fast at all. Um, and, uh, uh, so, but I'd written about my father in the first book of poetry, you know, poetically, I'd written about a homeless, my father being homeless. 
but there was something about that that was really unnerving for me because people would assume since it's poetry that I was just made up a character of a homeless father. It was like an archetype or, a, you know, it was a, a fiction of some sort, but it, it, it didn't, it wasn't actually my father. Even if I said my father, like in a poem, that doesn't really mean it's actually your father. Mm. So, you know, part of it was, uh, so there'd be harder for people to do that. So they'd have to keep my father and homeless in the same, you know, brain space, you know, that, negative capability brain space, which seemed to be hard for people to do. Like the, to know someone like, oh, your father is homeless right now. It's like, a, you know, they, they couldn't really process that. It seemed a lot of people couldn't. I mean, sadly, probably millions of people can process it because there's you know, millions of people homeless. Um, but a lot of the people I encountered couldn't. Uh, so yeah, part of it was that, but I just started, just started coming out of me because I always wrote, like by that point I'd been sober for quite a while and I was writing, you know, daily. And it just started coming out, like my time, like 10 years after we appeared, like it just started coming out. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and I didn't know, it felt like it was good. I mean, but I always, I'm, I'm, I don't know if it's ego or just defense or something, but, you know, whenever I write something, it feels good. You know, like I think like, oh, this is good. I don't think it's going to, at this point, I don't think it's going to win the Nobel Prize. But I think it's like, uh, I, I think like, yeah, this is, you know, now my, my good is, it's good enough. You know, like mm-hmm. this, is, this is as good as it can be. You know, it's not like, oh, this is, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever written. But it, it's found what it wants to be or it's finding what it wants to be or it's in that realm. It's in that sort of nice realm where you're, like, it seems like some energy. There's energy around it, you know? Uh, and I felt that. I felt energy around that book, like, for, you know. But it took a long time. It took seven years to, to, to write it. So it wasn't like a, like, you know, it wasn't Kerouac taking speed and writing on the road, you know, and just, like, in, in a weekend, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think, well, with the Kerouac thing, he was, he was journaling forever. And I, I feel like that was yeah. like a final rewrite through everything that yeah. he had. Yeah, there were drafts. Yeah, there were drafts too on the road. But he did, there is that scroll, the legendary scroll that, that's like, you know, one, you know, just on a long scroll where he typed the whole thing out. Like, uh, but yeah, there were drafts before that. Yeah, there, there were definitely. Did you ever see the scroll? Because they, that, that. You have. Yeah, you did? Yeah, my, my buddy used to run, my buddy uh, uh, used to run um, the, uh, the Berg collection at the, uh, at the, Boston, at the uh, New York uh, Library, New York Public Library, uh, Rodney Phillips. He was like in charge of the Berg collection, which was the rare, the rare ma- manuscript archive. Uh-huh. And he had, at one point he had a fly with the, the suitcase that contained the scroll like on a plane, like across the country to deliver it and literally handcuffed to his wrist. <laughs> this scroll wow. was handcuffed in a suitcase to his wrist. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I got to see the scroll. Yeah, yeah I did too. And, uh, Cause they showed it in San Francisco. They had it under the glass case. And that might've been when he was flying out there with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. It was so yeah. cool to see. It's funny. I think people don't realize, especially, um, how long, it, one, the daunting task of even writing a book or a screenplay, because every time I go into it, I'm like, the, it's almost like I, how women describe childbirth, where it's just like, you don't remember how awful it is until you're, until you're there. And then when you're done, you forget. And there's like weird cognitive dissonance. Well, but there's also a lot of joy in writing, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, that's what I forget. I used to think it was all, I used to sort of, highlight the, the pain but there's a there's also a lot of pleasure though too 
Yeah. And like, you know, when, when, when you put the key in the lock and turn it and it works, you know, you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You know, when it falls together in this way that seems beyond you, that seems like it's somehow come from outside of you, like a gift. It's like a gift. Yeah. Uh, Henry, I think Henry Miller was the one that said he just felt like he was channeling. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, D.H. Lawrence. D.H. Lawrence says that. And like, you know, Lewis Hyde has that whole book, that great book called The Gift which is all about like just that process. How it just comes from outside of you. It's just like you, you put yourself in a place where you can receive it. Yeah. I got to read that. I, it's called the gift. The gift. Yeah. By Lewis Hyde, L E W I S Lewis H Y D E. It's a great, great book. Great, great book. All right. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, like, especially like, uh, cause as you know, when it seems like you're prolific and you have a bunch of books come out, and people don't realize that usually the first book that you have published, there are like three manuscripts back there that never got published. Yeah. It's almost like yeah. we have to teach ourselves to write a book by just writing books. And that's the way to teach yourself to write a book. If yeah. You're writing books. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't you know. learn a lot. You learn, you learn a lot. I mean, I'm talking to, I was talking to a student today, like just about, uh, you know, this, this book they're in. It was just, it, you know, it was fun for me to look at it and be like, yeah, well, what if you, you know, this seems like the beginning. What, this has to happen. Once this had this cause and effect that happens too. Like he was writing a novel and I don't really, you know, but I have sense of structure and stuff. So I can, I can work with, usually I work with poets, but I'm working with this novelist that uh, a grad student. Uh, yeah, it was, just, it was just fun. Like I was like, I was like, oh yeah, this would be, if you did this, if, if imagine these are three other possible beginnings that you have in here. Like what, and each one would, would lead you to a whole nother direction, you know? Uh, you know, so yeah, I, I find I find it exciting. You know, still. And um, and with your new book, stay, which I, which uh, yeah. I just I really love. <laughs> there it is. Oh, is that? Oh, okay, I have the um, I have the uh, advanced review copy, but that's the um, yeah, yeah, that's the sexy one. The, with plates in it and everything. <laughs> yeah, this is nice. This is really a nice object. It's I'm I'm really happy with. It. Look look at the look at the inside. Though. The, the papers on the inside is like a little flat. Uh, you're, you're breaking up there a little bit. Keep it up for keep it up there for a second. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Little, you know, little quotes on the inside. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna have, yeah. I'm gonna have to get the hard copy too because that's it's just sexy as hell. Yeah, now, yeah. I love it. When, I love it when there's I love it when there's a literary and also just the the visual component that comes in on it as well. It's there's beauty mm -hmm. to that. Oh, right on. So that's that's Provincetown. This is a picture of my friend, a film still of my friend Misha Richter, of uh, our friend Paul Tasha, who rides horses in Provincetown. He keeps horses and rides them bareback, like in the bay. He like rides them through the water. So it's just this sort of beautiful still that. And then I wrote a poem that's next to it. But you know, the poem appeared in another one of my books, another book of poetry. Uh, you know, came out a few years ago, but no one really, unless I did a reading, you wouldn't get to see the image it came from, you know, you wouldn't get to see it. Cause occasionally I would project it if I gave a reading, if I could, or I would, you know, but this is, this is just a way to sort of bring the collaborations together, you know? Uh, so it's like 30 artists. It's like 30 different artists who are for the most part, I would, I would call them all my friends, even though some I've never met, but uh, you know, a couple of them I've never, I've never met. We just sort of were thrown together. Maybe only one. Maybe there's only one I never met. Catherine Opie, 
who's you know this great LA artist. Um, but uh, she and I, we, I mean, she checked in after the COVID thing. I mean, so you know, she got the book and checked in, and you know, so I feel like we're friends now, you know, in some way. It's about the COVID check-in. The COVID check-in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. Circle. You know, you know who your friends yeah. are when you're getting the check-ins and you're checking in, and then yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's been, I, I've been reaching out to people that I haven't talked to in a long time just cause I love them. And I'm just like, how are you guys dealing up there? How are you dealing over there? When you, when you hear about stuff, I mean, it's pretty terrifying. I mean, I, I didn't, wouldn't say I knew him, but I'd been in the same room with him and talked to him a little bit. Hal Wilner just died yesterday, uh, who was like, you know, the producer of Lou Reed and like, you know, all these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, he just died yesterday and they didn't say it was COVID, but they said that he had COVID like symptoms and they didn't, they hadn't tested him, you know, but you know, like, I mean, he's a serious, you know, he's a serious figure in the music world and, and he was a sweet guy from what I, what I knew of him, you know, yeah, uh, a really good presence, you know? So yeah, see, it's scary. Like it's that, like it's almost, sometimes you don't want to contact someone cause you're afraid they're dead, you know? Like, yeah, there's always that. You might not want to know. You might want to not, not want to know that that day. You know, <laughs> like that. Yeah. You might want to wait till evening so you can still have a good day and not fuck up your whole day. <laughs> well, the, that's an interesting thought because now when you call people and it's at evening and if they've heard this, they'll be like, "Did you think I was dead?" And I'll say, "Yeah." I mean, pretty much everyone. I think everyone's dead, really. I mean, like, I mean, this is like it. I don't see anyone. All I see, I was sort of saying like the Zoom thing. What are we on? Are we on Zoom? Yeah, we're um, on. Like the Zoom thing, I do it with my students or I do it with like a group of friends sometimes. And I, I kind of hate it. I really hate it. Like, because um, everyone, all your friends are in little boxes on the screen. There's like, you know, 10 little boxes with your friends in them. And I'm like, this is what it is to be dead. Like all your friends are in little boxes. Like, you know, this is like, and you just, you're sort of talking to them, but you can't really hear them because there's a delay and no one can interrupt each other. So one just talks. So it's like a little... You know, it's one of those little animatronic death things, you know, like it's terrible. It's yeah. Terrible. It, it, and it's, it's so intriguing that we, that we, how much we need to have the three dimensional, this, that even like the smell of a person or the vibe of a person, when we can feel the energy, like sometimes we could feel really bad energy or really good energy, but you kind of got to feel that right in person. And this kind of, this loses it, you know? It must be some way they have to do an app where you can pass smells back and forth. They should do that. Yes. Because, yes. Yeah. You, you put the, you know, you just take the phone or something, put it under your armpit or something. Right. And then it like goes to the other person, you know, some way. Cause the pheromones are important. You know, the pheromones are important. Yes. Yes. Yeah. They, why didn't they I'll, think I'll, I'll work on that? You're, you're, you're closer to Silicon Valley. You should talk to someone. <laughs> yeah. Because they listen to me up there. The minute they're like, <laughs> we've run out of ideas. Let's call Tony Duchesne. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nick, it was fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Yeah, that's great. We're we going to sign off now. We're going to hang up now, or are we just going to... Uh, the joys of not interviewing in person. No, we didn't hang up. I had to have Nick do the front-end ID that you hear on the show where the guest says, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. You know, I figure it's better to butter up the guest with a nice interview, and then you can have the tone set up. So when they say the drinks with Tony ID that I put at the beginning of the show, it sounds all warmed up and juicy before we even start getting warmed up and juicy. 
That sounded pornographic. Thanks for listening. That was Nick Flynn. He's the author of Stay, Threads, Conversations, and Collaborations. And if you want to see a video version of Drinks with Tony, which I'm calling Drinks with Tony on video, check out my Instagram account at Tony Duchesne to see my interview with him as well as a performance by Ricarda Parasol and my chat with her. And she was on Drinks with Tony earlier this year. But on the video, she does a performance of her song, Cloak of Comedy. At Tony Duchesne for the Instagram account. In other news, our guest from two weeks ago, Alia Volt, was on Fresh Air yesterday. So check out her interview there regarding her book, Home Baked. Then check out our, our interview, and you'll see why NPR can never hire me as an interviewer. My voice is not monotone. I don't try to sound smarter than all of mankind. I want people to know I breathe the same air as they do. NPR, if you're hiring, give me a call. Next week on the show, we have author Maggie Downs, and we'll discuss her memoir, Braver Than You Think. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. I'll see you next week.